We are now in week three of our four-week series called Marked by Charcoal. And in this series, we are looking at scenes from the life of Peter. And we're asking the question, what did Peter's life look like after he encountered grace? You know, because Peter, at one fireside, he denied knowing Jesus. And then at another, after the resurrection, Jesus restores the relationship and offers him grace and forgiveness. And this takes root in Peter, and it changes him. And we want to see, what did his life look like after this experience? And can I just say, you know, like, <clears throat> studying this week after week, I've just come to a deeper appreciation of Peter. I don't know, maybe it's because I'm strong-willed. Maybe it's because I constantly need to be broken and humbled. But I just have come to appreciate the Apostle Peter, and I'm glad that we bear his name in our church's name, St. Peter's Fireside. I'm glad that we're going to be a community that exhibits the grace of Jesus transforming people like Peter, transforming people like us. Uh, this week, we're going to look at a scene from his life in Acts 12. Um, and in this, we're going to see three things that Peter was marked by. The first thing we'll see is that he was marked by the impossible becoming possible. And second, uh, he was marked by the reality that God is a God who rescues. And then third, that God rescues in greater ways. So that we're going we're to look at the impossible becoming possible because God is a God who rescues, who's at work in the world rescuing in greater ways. This is what's happening in the scene. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles or your service sheets to Acts 12, it'd be good to keep those in front of you so you can follow along. Um, but first, let's set the scene in its context. Acts 12 is an incredibly dark day in the life of the early church. Uh, in Acts 4, what we looked at last week, Peter and John uh, were arrested and put on trial, right? And this was the beginning of persecution in the book of Acts. And really, that scene was just a, a drop in the pond of the sort of persecution that was going to take place. By the time we get to Acts 7, we see riptides overcoming the church. Stephen is martyred. And then it continues to get worse. And by the time we get to Acts 12, we are looking at a devastating situation for the church when it comes to persecution. Uh, Acts 12, verses 1 through 4, um, describe an intense persecution. Herod lays violent hands on the church. This isn't just a government saying, look, you Christians can have your faith, just keep it to yourself. This is violence against a minority, against a religious minority. And then we're told that Herod had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. And Luke, he just says it's so matter of fact. He doesn't dwell there. Like, this would have been a painful, painful moment for the church. Remember, James was one of the very first people that began following Jesus. He was one of Peter's best friends. He, he was one of the inner three. He was, he was one of the key leaders in the early church. And all of a sudden, he's martyred. He's beheaded. And to make matters worse, there were people in their society who were actually pleased with James's death. There were people who were pleased with the church being persecuted. This is a, a dark situation. And so Herod, he sees that people are happy that James was killed, and so he has Peter put in prison. And not just any prison, maximum security prison. That's what the whole four, four squares of soldiers is about. Peter is in is put in the strongest prison that they have in that day. And his death is looming over his head, and it says that Herod kept him there until after the Passover festival, and that was when he was planning to have him executed. So James has been murdered, Peter is in a high-security prison, and the church is being violently persecuted by governmental powers. 
I want us to try to enter into this because this is so foreign for us in Vancouver, isn't it? But this is a reality for the church around the globe today. Imagine the, the bleakness, you know, the hurt, the taunts of others, the pain. You know, things turning around at that moment for the church must have just seemed impossible. And Luke tells us that all of this took place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just before the Passover. Uh, you might remember that that is the time, that is the season that Jesus was arrested, that Jesus was tried, that Jesus was crucified. And the church, they would have been remembering this. And so in this time of intense persecution, during the time that Jesus was tried and crucified, we're told in verse 5 that earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. I want to just take a quick note of what they're not doing. They're not filling out a petition. You know, they're not posting statuses to Facebook. You know, they're not trying to get favor with politicians who may be favorable to their cause. All of those things may have been good things. What they are doing is praying earnestly. And this word earnest in the Greek, it's, it's a peculiar word that only shows up twice in the New Testament. It shows up here in Acts 12, and it shows up in Luke when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying earnestly. And we're told he's, he's sweating drops of blood and he's praying to align himself with God's will, to align himself with God's heart and desire. And so as the church remembers his death, surely they are remembering how Christ earnestly prayed all the way to the crucifixion. And in the face of the impossible, the church turns to the only one who can take impossibilities and make them into possibilities. So Herod, he might wield the sword, but the church wields prayer. And then the sun sets. That's the context of the scene at hand. And so then the question is, how does God show up in the darkness of this impossible situation? So let's get to Peter. As the scene unfolds, we join Peter in his jail cell. Verse 6 tells it it's now the night before Herod is going to have him brought out for his execution. And he's guarded by soldiers. He's bound in chains with more guards at the door. Luke's trying to stress something to us. He's trying to help us understand that escape for Peter was impossible. You know, Peter wasn't about to have a Shawshank redemption moment. He's not plotting and planning. He doesn't have a little spoon. And he's not chiseling away at the wall and scattering the debris in the courtyard. You know, he's not crawling through the sewer system and finding freedom. He is, he is bound. He is chained. An escape is not an option. And you would think, Peter must be losing his mind in that jail cell. Remember in the Gospels when Peter is on a boat and it's going fast, and um, some of you got that, and he, they're overcome by a storm, and the disciples and Jesus are in this boat, and the disciples are freaking out. They're about to lose their lives, and what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. You know, looking at Peter on that boat, you would think this is not the type of guy uh, who would be calm, cool, and collected in a life-threatening situation. But what's, what's Peter doing in the jail cell? He's sleeping. He's not fretting about his life. He's not fretting about what may come in the morning. He's not worried about keeping his head. And I think this demonstrates something that Paul says to the Philippians. That the peace of Christ, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Because I think in that jail cell, Peter had come to terms with his impending death. And I think he could have peace because he put his faith and his trust in who God was. You see, anxiety, it comes uh, when we focus on what God, uh, what we want God to do for us. And we, we want to tell God what we think should happen. We want God to do what we want. But Peter, he trusts who God is. He knows who Jesus is. And so he's peaceful in what God might do. And this sort of peace, I think, is impossible for us to muster up. It only comes through a vibrant and trusting and ongoing faith in Jesus. But then it's in this place, this place of complete helplessness, that God does show up, that God does rescue. And it's a dramatic and miraculous rescue You know, look at verses 8 through 10 with me. They describe the rescue. You have an angel of the Lord show up. And scholars have no idea why the next thing happens. Like the angel strikes Peter. Just no clue. Maybe deep sleeper. We just, we don't know. The chains fall off. Peter follows the angel through the gates. Now that hymn we sang earlier by Charles Wesley captures the moment. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. But verse 9 tells us that While all of this was happening, Peter didn't know that it was real. He thought he was having a vision. Have you ever had someone tell you something and you're like, that's impossible, that can't be real. A month before uh, Julianne and my wedding, um, I got a phone call from my best man's girlfriend. And she was panicked, trying to say 10 things at once. And I said, Nicole, slow down, take a breath. What's wrong? She took a breath and she said, Darren won't be able to come to your wedding because he got hit by a cannon. And I just said, what? Like, what are you talking about? People don't get hit by a cannon. This is the 21st century. Like, you don't get attacked by cannons. And then I thought, unless, and I shouldn't have asked this. I said, was he fighting pirates? And she said, no, 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 no. He was playing floor hockey at the armory, and he was running full speed, and he wasn't looking where he was going, and he ran straight into a stationary cannon. All of a sudden, the impossibility of a pirate attack, an attack by cannon, you know, became possible with floor hockey. Back to Peter. For him, this rescue that was happening, it didn't seem real. It seemed like he was having a vision, and that in any moment he could wake back up in that jail cell. It was beyond the realm of human possibility. It was impossible. But then he finds himself outside, And he comes to himself. Look at verse 11. I love this. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. What was impossible for Peter was only possible in the realm of God. God moves Peter from the idea of being rescued, being but a vision, to the rescue being a tangible reality that he possesses. And Peter says what made the impossible possible is that God is the type of God who rescues The Lord rescued me. And then Peter finally comes to himself even more and has a moment of clarity. Hey, I'm a fugitive standing in the middle of the street. I should probably get out of here. And so he heads to the house church. He heads to Mary's place, the place where the church is earnestly praying, and Peter begins to knock. So that canon, apparently my friend Darren, plays hockey with such conviction. Like, like such passion that when he ran full speed into that cannon, he broke several ribs, 
uh, punctured his lung, and damaged his liver. Uh, it was actually a life-threatening injury. Um, and what's amazing, like this happened a month before the wedding, Darren still flew across the continent and showed up at my wedding. Like that's the sort of best man you want in your corner. Here's what I find so fascinating about Darren's canon experience. God used it to get to his heart. It was from that moment onward that Darren started following Jesus. If you had said to Darren, though, before that experience, look, one day you're going to run into a cannon, but God's going to rescue you from death, and you're going to start following Jesus. Do you know what he would have said? Do you know what I would have said? You're out of your mind. Like, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. Peter, he's knocking at the house church's door. And Rhoda, the servant girl, she comes to answer the door. She hears Peter's voice. And in her joy, doesn't let Peter in, but, but runs to tell the people, Peter is at the door, Peter is at the door. And look at verse 15. Their response is just so honest. They said, Rhoda, you are out of your mind. It shows that even in their prayers, they still felt like rescue for Peter was an impossibility. They knew God could rescue him. But God didn't rescue James, so why would he rescue Peter? You know, they were praying earnestly. They were praying prayers that they knew God could only answer. But it was far more probable that Peter was going to his death. So maybe they were simply praying for him to have strength until the end. But it seems by looking at their response that Peter knocking at the door wasn't even in the realm of possibility for them. But Rhoda, she keeps insisting, he's at the door, people, he's at the door. And they say, Rhoda, it's his angel. Okay. You know, this sort of thing, Rhoda, like it's, it's not possible. That, and if you, if you just think about Peter in that situation, like that must have been a really long five minutes. Like, hello, fugitive at your door, trying to get inside. But eventually Rhoda prevails and they go to the door and verse 16 says, they saw him and were amazed. They go through this same process that Peter had gone through, going from the impossible, like this can't happen, to the impossible standing on their doorstep knocking. And then Peter, he, he just wants to visit quickly and go to the next house church. And so he says, look, I just want to tell you one thing, that the impossible was possible because God is the rescuer, is who God is. Peter wants them to know that he's not standing at their door because somehow he borrowed his way out of jail but that God delivered him, that God rescued him, that God is the one who made the impossible possible. We love this story. Like, this is a, a beautiful story. This is a brilliant story. We love stories of rescue, don't we? Princess Bride, right? Like, we, we love these sort of things. We love seeing deliverance. We love seeing the hero win. And we could end the sermon there. God makes the impossible possible because he's the rescuer. And that is true and that is good and that is a truth that I hope is written on all of our hearts. But there's a looming shadow over this story, isn't there? There's victory and there's rescue, but there's still pain. James is still dead. That's a difficult tension, isn't it? Peter is rescued. James wasn't. That hasn't changed. And then a few years later, Peter finds himself in jail again, but that time it leads to his crucifixion. And so does God make the impossible possible then? Or, or is his rescue just a band-aid? A 
until death has the final say. But what we'll see is Peter's rescue here. It is just a penny in God's economy of rescue. Over and over in the scriptures, from, from, from start to finish, God is described as a God who rescues. And in Jesus, we get a fuller picture of the great rescue that God is performing in the world. In the Gospels, Jesus said, what is impossible for man is possible with God. Luke 18, 27. What is impossible for man is possible with God. What, he wasn't talking about temporary circumstances in that conversation. He was actually talking about eternal life. He was talking about unending life and the unending love of God. What's the greatest impossibility for us? Life after death. Life after James is beheaded. Life after Peter is crucified. Rescue from the grave. That's the sort of thing that we can't undo despite all our ingenuity. We cannot overcome the grave. And Jesus wanted to make it clear to everyone that eternal life is impossible for for us. That you can't get in there through your earning or by being a good person. You can't get in there by any sort of merit. Like This is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. You are not the type of people who inherit the kingdom of God by yourselves. Eternal life is simply impossible. And so when we see that the Lord as our rescuer, it's, it's bigger than, than rescue from just circumstances. It's, it's bigger than relief from certain situations. Think again of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying earnestly. He's sweating blood and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He asks for rescue. He asks for a way out if possible. More importantly, he asks for God's will. And in asking for that, in aligning himself with God's desires and God's heart, Jesus isn't rescued. Jesus isn't rescued from being arrested. Jesus isn't rescued from an unjust trial. Jesus isn't rescued from just public ridicule and shaming. He's not rescued from an inhumane beating. He's not rescued from being strung up on the cross. He's not rescued from the cup, which is symbolic language for the wrath of God against humanity's wickedness. He's not rescued from that being poured out on him. He dies, a humiliating and shameful death, and he wasn't rescued. But Jesus was rescued from the grave. Jesus wasn't rescued in his death because he died the death we should have died so that we could be rescued with him in his resurrected life. Jesus wasn't rescued in his death because he dies the death we should have died so that we could be rescued with him in his resurrected life. He, was res- he wasn't rescued so that we could be rescued. And this is the greater rescue that God accomplishes through the cross, through Jesus' death and his resurrection. He rescues us from the power of sin. He rescues us from spiritual opposition. He rescues us from evil. And most of all, he rescues us from death. And it's all because of his great love. 
that Jesus freely and willingly wasn't rescued for our sake so that he could bring us back into God's eternal plan. I think this is why Peter could sleep in that jail cell. He was marked by a deep trust in what Jesus had accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection for him. He was marked by the hope and assurance of life continuing on the other side of eternity. He knew that one way or another he would be rescued by God. He would either be rescued out of that jail cell or he will be rescued from the grave. But either way, nothing could take the resurrection away from Peter. Nothing could take away the life that was waiting for him on the other side of eternity because nothing can pry Peter or anyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus from Jesus' grip and love over their life. Nothing can separate those who trust in Jesus from his love. And so then how, how does rescue intersect with our lives? I want to wrap up with something Peter wrote to the churches before his death. 2 Peter 2.9 The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God knows how to rescue us. And he acts to rescue us. But do you believe that? Do you trust God to rescue us in his way, whatever that might look like? Here's the thing, I don't, I don't know what situations all of you are facing. I don't know what impossibilities are in your life right now. Maybe your impossible situation is a lifelong conflict with your family or a family member. Maybe it is a very long struggle with loneliness and a longing for love that is just not being fulfilled and it seems impossible. Maybe it's continual dead-end jobs or just persistent unemployment. Maybe it's increasing debt. Maybe it's prolonged illness that just isn't getting better and it seems impossible. Maybe it's watching people that you love self-destruct. Or maybe it is certain vices and habits and addictions in your own life that you just can't seem to overcome and the idea of moving past those things seems impossible. Whatever it is for you, I know you can name it. You know what it is. You know what situations in your life simply seem impossible. And I can't even claim to know how God will show up in your life. Because it will look different for each of us. But in facing the impossible, <clears throat> are you trusting in your own strength and your own ability still? Are you plotting and planning to see how you can get out of it, how you can get around it. Then you're refusing to recognize and identify with Peter in that jail cell. That maybe you're in a situation that only God can rescue you from. Maybe though, in facing the impossible, you respond like the church did to Rhoda. You're out of your mind, like this, this is impossible. But then it's doubt that's keeping you from going to God it's doubt that keeps you from listening to the Peters and the Rodas in your life who say, God rescues. This is how he has shown up in my life. And if you put your faith and your trust in the God who has gone to such great lengths to rescue us, you will see his rescue in, in your life in one way or another. Maybe in facing the impossible, though, 
you're feeling defeated. And you're feeling like God isn't doing what you ask. You've, you've even been seeking God and the situation is just not changing the way that you would like the situation to change. And I think it's especially in places like that. It's especially in times like that where we don't hold on to our desire for a specific type of resolution. And we don't hold on to our inability to grasp what God's doing. But what we hold on to in these impossible situations that don't seem to budge is who we know God to be. Who we know God is. Regardless if we understand how God is acting. We can be like Peter, sleeping in the face of death. We can hold on to the hope that even if this life involves situations that seem impossible, that God is ultimately working for our rescue. And I want to say, like, we need to recognize that there is room in the Christian community for multiple experiences of what God's rescue looks like. Remember, Peter was rescued. Some people might experience rescue here and now. James wasn't. I think that's why the author of Hebrews says, by faith, some escape the edge of the sword, and by faith, some die by the edge of the sword. But either way, one is not considered more faithful or holy than the other. Because what we share in common is the God who will rescue us ultimately, the God who will bring us into his unending love ultimately. And so in facing the impossible and looking at this text, it actually shows us how we should respond to these situations. This scene from Peter's life, it points us up and it points us down. It points us down to our knees in earnest prayer. But it also points us up to align ourselves with who God is. You know, as a community, like we want to be an earnestly praying community. We want to be a community that prays big prayers. We want it to be a community where we see impossible things overcome only because God can do it. We want to be a community where we see rescue in people's lives, where we see people freed from things they couldn't free themselves from, where families that were completely broken are turned around, where people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We want to be that sort of community. But ultimately, in praying, in desiring those things, what we really want to do is align ourselves with God's heart and God's desire and what God wants to do. Because we know that in life or in death, God is the one who rescues us. We know that when things don't resolve, when things fall apart, when bodies decay, when relationships end, when death stings, we know that none of these things can rob us of eternal life. We know that one day God will come and make all things new. That God is inviting us into unending life in his unending love. And why do we know that? Because Jesus made the impossible possible for us. Because God ultimately rescues us through Jesus' death and resurrection.